Good morning. We're going to be looking this morning at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verses 11 through 13. And so if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's word together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the goodness of your word. We thank you, Lord, for this passage today, these pastoral blessings. And I ask God that you would open our minds and open our hearts to receive your word and And by doing so, that you would increase our faith, Lord, that we would be people who truly love you and love one another as we should, and that we may stand firm in the hope of your return when we shall be with you forever and ever. And so we give you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in review of the last uh, few messages, actually, we saw that Paul has a heart of an apostle, or heart of a pastor, and the mind of an apostle. A pastor's heart is a heart that has affection for his people, is unselfish toward his people, and has compassion for his people in their troubles. This is the pastoral heart that provides the shepherding that every congregation needs, every flock needs this kind of shepherd's heart. But we also see that Paul had the mind of an apostle. And in that sense, he has a mind that is determined to fulfill his commission as an apostle by not laboring in vain, by not putting effort into areas where there will be no fruit, by teaching the truth so as to produce the spiritual fruits of faith that God desires, of love toward one another, and of hope toward Christ's return. And so today we're going to see how Paul brings these two together, his heart and his mind, uh, to pronounce three blessings on the church in Thessalonica. And these are three distinct pastoral blessings found in this passage. So to read the passage again, read it with the, uh, the eye of a detective to look for the three blessings and the key word that denotes that these are in fact blessings. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, 
so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now these three blessings are rich in doctrinal content. Uh, We have already looked at the three, in a sense, uh, in some depth prior to this passage, as you're going to see. But what Paul is doing in this short passage, three verses, he is using what is known as the optative mood in the Greek. Now, the optative mood in the Greek can be a request for a blessing or a request for a curse from God. But it is given in the hearing of the person who is targeted for the blessing or the curse. And this is why we find this word may repeated over and over again. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. This optative mood can express either a blessing or a curse. And now notice that this word may is used in all three verses. It is the may the Lord do this or may the Lord do that uh, for you or in some cases to you. Okay, so we see this form of prayer slash blessing or cursing throughout the Bible. For instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 11, may the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are and bless you as he has promised you. Notice the may there. That is in a, in a Hebrew version of the optative mood that we find in Greek. When we come to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 7, we read, Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. See, this is a prayer that is made in the presence of the person who's receiving it, who, who it's, uh, it's targeted toward. And so when you hear this, or when you use this in your own uh, prayer life or with others, you know, it is a blessing. Now, As an example of the optative uh, mood in in the form of a curse, we find that in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm, Paul writes. May the Lord repay him according to his works. Now, that's not good news for Alexander. If God answers this uh, prayer uh, in the optative mood. Now, in Proverbs chapter 26, for those of you who may be wondering, are curses real? Uh, do they really work? How does all that work? Well, we find in Proverbs 26, verse 2, this very wonderful, um, wonderful proverb that says, Like a flitting sparrow, like a flying swallow, so a curse without cause shall not alight. So if somebody curses you and there is no basis for that curse, you have done them no harm, you're not deserving of this curse, 
it will not land. Okay? It'll go right on by. You are a Teflon. Okay? It won't stick. Now, that does leave open the possibility, though, <laughs> that you are deserving of this curse. That you have done something wrong. That there may very well be a, uh, a basis for this being answered. As, for instance, we, we read in the Old Testament, I, I could have brought this up, but I'm just thinking of it now. We're, we're told that we are to be kind to the laborer who's reaping our fields because they have a voice before the Lord. They pray to the Lord and the Lord will deal with us according to their prayers and evidently their prayers are not very kindly. Lord, vindicate us. Lord, give us justice. That's not good for the oppressor. And so, although a curse without cause shall not light, a curse with cause, cause may land a very heavy blow. So let's take a look at these three blessings in the optative mood. Number one, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. <clears throat> now that may not seem like much of a blessing, but in the context of what Paul has been telling us, uh, he is praying for the blessing of his eventual return to Thessalonica as a blessing to the church there in Thessalonica. Now, now why would he uh, want to do that? Well, he tells us in verse 10 very clearly that he might perfect what is lacking in your faith. That's what he wants. He wants to come back and teach teach the Word of God. But how can Paul, or anyone else for that matter, perfect what is lacking in someone else's faith? How do you do that? There's only one way, and that is faith comes by hearing. We read in Romans 10:17. so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And that is why Paul is so eager to return to Thessalonica. He wants to come back and teach. He knows that by teaching, he will increase the faith of the Thessalonians. How does that work? Well, in a sense, faith is always faith in something. And in the context of being a Christian, faith is in the truth of the gospel. It's in the truth of the Word of God. It's in the truth of sound doctrine. And so the more doctrine you have, the more you have to believe. And your faith increases as you hear with understanding the Word of God, the truth concerning everything. And so for Paul to return to Thessalonica by teaching them more, he will increase their faith. They'll have more to believe, more to believe in, more to trust in. As we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, this is the verse just prior to uh, chapter 3 and verses 10 and 11. For what, or rather verse 11, for what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy which we rejoice for your sake 
before God night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Paul's desire is to return so that he can teach. And this blessing tracks perfectly with Paul's previously stated desire to build up their faith. He honors them for their faith and he wants to continually perfect their faith. He wants to teach them more of the word of God. So that's blessing number one, that he might come back to Thessalonica in order to teach the word of God and increase their faith. Blessing number two, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. In this blessing, Paul is praying for the blessing of a great increase in their love. Now, it's not only a love for one another. You'll notice a love for one another and to all, to all people. To all would have to include the same unbelievers who are persecuting them at that time. Unbelievers who are in need of salvation. Unbelievers who need to see the reality of the gospel and of their faith. Because rather than re reacting in, in revenge and in hatred and reviling, and instead they respond with love. We've seen wonderful stories of this throughout history. One of my favorites comes in regard to Corey Ten Boom and the way in which she was able to forgive the soldiers who were guarding the uh, concentration camp that she was confined in. When she had opportunity to spit in his face, instead she embraced him and loved him, and it brought his conversion. You see, we're dealing with the power of love, the power to forgive, the power, in some cases, the power to die rather than to resort to hatred and bitterness. And to die faithfully is an act of love toward those who are killing you and to allow them to have the chance to have the darkness in their own hearts shattered by the example of the reality of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is referring to his own example in this regard. Paul is a man who's persecuted probably more than anyone else at this time, hounded from town to town, beaten, sometimes left for dead. And yet we find him returning and preaching and teaching and loving and showing kindness to those who have been so harmful to him. And so Paul refers to his own example as the standard to follow in the regard of what it looks like to love your enemies and not just to love those who love you. Now something was interfering with the expression of the, Thess the Thessalonians' love. We see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 9. We'll just refer to it briefly because we will unpack this passage carefully in the near future. 
But notice it says, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. That's one of the evidences of salvation, is that God gives us a new heart and a new spirit, and he causes us to walk in his statutes and do what's pleasing to him. He causes us to do that by changing our heart, not by coercion, not by turning us, us into automatons or robots, but rather by giving us a new heart that wants to do what's right, wants to do what's pleasing to God, and therefore wants to show love toward those that God loves. And God loves the world so much that he sent his only begotten son. So there's no one left out of this love. But notice he writes in verse 10, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. There's something that is holding them back. And Paul's going to get into that in verse 11. But that's for a future sermon. Okay? So for now, just notice that when we get to chapter 4 and we get to find out what specifically is keeping those Thessalonian Christians from loving one another as they should, we're going to be able to remove those same obstacles from our own lives. But this blessing, this blessing of uh, wanting to increase their love, uh, tracks well with Paul's theme of love, as we've seen throughout this epistle to the Thessalonian church. Now, blessing number three is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now, if you know your Bible and you know Paul's writings especially, <clears throat> you know that in the mind of Paul, this idea of holiness uh, is connected directly to the idea of hope, and specifically hope in the coming of our Lord Jesus. And so Paul's praying for the blessing of a firm and steady heart that will remain focused on pleasing God, specifically by looking forward with hope to the return of Christ. Now, in John, 1 John chapter 3, in verse 3, we read, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he, that is the Lord, is pure. And so we have the coming of Christ as being that hope, which is an anchor for our soul. We're looking forward to the return of Christ. And if you really believe that Jesus is coming back, if you believe that you're going to meet him, even if you go by way of the grave, that you're going to stand before Jesus Christ, that hope will purify you. It will help you say no to all kinds of sin. And it will help you say yes to all kinds of righteousness. Just meditating upon the return of Christ, meditating upon the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat of Christ, where rewards are handed out 
by the Lord himself. Not the judgment seat that it would uh, condemn us, but the judgment seat that would evaluate us and what we've done in this life with this body. That will help you say no to sin. Whatever your besetting sin may be, and we all have them, whatever it is that you are tempted to do that you know is not pleasing to God, it is that hope of standing before him and hearing him say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. That hope will purify you and help you say no to sin. So this blessing tracks well with Paul's theme of hope. But you'll notice he he refers here to being blameless in holiness before God. So what exactly is holiness? According to uh, Noah Webster in his 1828 dictionary, and I'm for, for space, I'm kind of paraphrasing a little bit here, but he tells us that holiness is the state of being holy. Well, that's helpful. <laughs> so what is the state of being holy? Well, it's a state of purity. And purity is in opposition to defilement. Okay? It is integrity of moral character. That means all the parts of your being are properly connected so that what you say you believe shows up in what you actually do. If a person lacks integrity, they can say they believe something is true, but then it doesn't show up. They say they'll meet you at a certain time and place, and then they don't show up. That's a lack of integrity. That's also a a lack of time management, right? When I've taught on this subject in the past, one of the ways in which I've helped Christians to overcome their tendency to be inconsistent is to look closely at the linkage between heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so if your heart is the seed of your faith and your soul is the source from which your passionate goals arise and your mind is that part of you who plans and makes, makes arrangements and does reconnaissance and is able to formulate an action plan, then your strength is that part of you that takes action and actually does what you believe in your heart is important. So that's integrity. That basically, that's why we use the word integrated circuit when we're talking about uh, electronics. If, the, if there's a gap, if there's a bad, bad soldering job somewhere on the circuit board, that circuit board lacks integrity. The linkage, the connections are not strong enough for the signal to go all the way through. And so here we're, we're told that holiness is a matter of integrity of moral character, that we actually are doers, not just talkers. It is freedom from sin. It is sanctity, which means to be sanctified, be set apart. Applied to God, holiness denotes perfect purity or perfect integrity of moral character. And that is one of God's essential attributes. Now, Webster goes on to apply this in different ways. He says, applied to human beings, holiness is purity of heart or dispositions, sanctified affections, that means set aside for God's purposes, piety, moral goodness, but it is not perfection. So, 
In other words, Webster did not buy into perfectionism, which is an error, which is a heresy. People who think that you can be perfect in this life uh, are going a step too far in this area of holiness. One of those people was uh, John Wesley, by the way, so watch out for him. <clears throat> you, can, you can listen to George Whitfield. Okay, he, he, he got it right, but Wesley didn't. Charles was kind of somewhere in the middle. <laughs> we won't go there. So it's, when we want to think about holiness, I, I think it helps us to think of holiness as being focused. You know, when you focus on something, you, you are intending to not be distracted. You try to eliminate all the distractions, right? So you can stay focused on what you're doing. That's really hard in today's world. With the, with the technology being as it is and everything being driven by notices and notifications and, and advertising and pop-up windows and all the rest. Here you are, you're trying to do something and it may be really, really important and all of a sudden something over here says ding! And your mind wants to find out, well, who is that? What is that? Okay, that's a distraction. And so in, when it comes to doing something on your computer, you know, you get one of those softwares that allows you to eliminate all those distractions so you can stay focused just on the thing you're trying to do. That would be holiness when it comes to a computer. Not being deterred, not being defiled, not being distracted. So holiness in this sense is a defensive posture. It's, it's not... It's not something that's expansive, it's something that's defensive. So what is God's holiness defending? It's defending his goodness. God is good. And he, he reveals that over and over again. God is good. And his holiness defends his goodness from being distracted, de deterred, defiled. All those things that we want to avoid. That's what holiness does. And so when God is holy, he is insisting on not being in the presence of sin. And it's a very dangerous thing to go into the God's, God's presence with sin in your heart. It's a dangerous thing to go to the Lord's table with sin that you're nurturing in your heart. That you, you could die. And Paul warns not to take part in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. That's what holiness means. He's protecting the, the uh, purity and he doesn't want sin to defile it. Now when it's applied to an object or to a building it is a form of sacredness. This is, this is sacred. We set it apart. It's a state of being set apart or consecrated to God or to his worship as when it's applied to a church building or to the implements of worship in the temple in the Old Testament. These are all things that are set apart and they are sacred. And this is why when David showed up and wanted the, the showbread for the temple to feed to himself and to his, his men, uh, there was a hesitation there. This is, this is dedicated to God. And yet God makes it clear that this is intended to be done. God's purpose is fulfilled. Sometimes our, our strictness in regard to holiness misses the point entirely. Sometimes in our attempts to be holy, we, we turn in the direction of a legalistic self-righteousness 
that is actually unholy and that hurts the cause of God and Christ in the world. And so we want to be walking in the Spirit and not just by the letter of the law, but by the Spirit of the law so that we don't be like the Pharisees who would walk past a man on the road who's dying because we don't want to be defiled by bending over and touching him or in otherwise uh, being late for church, right? This is the thing that we need to keep in mind. God intends for our holiness to be a reflection of his goodness. And so don't ever let God's holiness and your attempt to be holy turn you into somebody who is onerous and offensive to the very people you're intended to reach with the gospel. Do you see the play that goes on here? God wants all of us to live a life with a clear conscience before God, to defend what is sacred, but not to do it in such a way as to portray God as though he has issues, that he's, a pro- that he's the problem, that somehow he is obsessed with something that shouldn't matter. You see what, what a dangerous thing that is? We have to be in this world wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We have to understand that the whole point of it all is to take the gospel to a world that desperately needs to hear it and understand it. And if we allow ourselves with a misguided sense of what it means to be holy, to isolate ourselves from the world we were intended to reach, then we end up becoming a mockery. I don't know if any of you have ever lived in or around a community where holiness was the primary issue. You can get some pretty weird stuff going on. We're talking about big hair, okay? Big hair piled up high and a very odd community. (laughs) I don't know if you ever met that. I lived in Ohio and you'd see that all the time. You see people who were in the holiness movement. And uh, it was not attractive. It did not lead people to Christ. It, it a- actually uh, repelled people from the gospel because it was just obsessing over things that really didn't matter. You know, I remember one day I was uh, ministering to a young man who was addicted uh, to uh, a particular drug. It was a downer uh, type of a drug and I can't remember the name of it now, but uh, you know, we were witnessing to him, and, and my wife came home from somewhere, my wife Sono, uh, and she was wearing slacks, okay, she was wearing pants. And this young man was backslidden from a holiness movement church, and when he saw my wife was wearing pants, he totally rejected everything I had to say, and went off and did his drugs. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, what? He was so offended that she was wearing pants that he wouldn't even let us continue the conversation about him repenting of his sin of abusing drugs. That's how weird it can get. And so when we think of holiness, we want to be careful we don't end up in that ditch of being uh, very, very ineffective in the gospel uh, by our attempts to just be different. Now, the basic use of the word holiness in most contexts is to be separated 
to the exclusive service of God. And that's a good working definition right there. You have been saved out of this world and you have been set apart by God to be his witnesses, to be his people. We're going to look at that more in a few weeks uh, as we get into this subject in more detail in, in the specific areas where holiness uh, is needed. And it's not something that's uh, unimportant, but something that is fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. But for now, just file this away. You are holy in the sense that God has set you apart for a very special purpose. And you are to stay focused on that purpose and not be distracted from that purpose. To not let anything defile you in regard to that purpose. And nothing can deter you from that purpose. So we could, in a very real sense, say, Be ye focused as I am focused, says the Lord. God is focused on being good and wise and loving and merciful and kind, but also just. And he is a God of wrath. And all of it works together for his good. The goodness of God is the thing that's being defended by the holiness of God. Now, as I said, we'll come back to that in a few weeks. These next two messages that I teach uh, will be Christmas messages, okay? I felt like that uh, it would be appropriate to give you a good dose of Christmas uh, doctrine uh, and leading up to Christmas Day, and then we'll jump back into Thessalonians uh, at the, after the first of the year. So, here we have faith, hope, and love. In 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2, we read, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election, your calling by God. So, Paul is pronouncing these three pastoral blessings in ways that lead to the increase of what he has already acknowledged is taking place in their lives. What Paul is doing in this passage is he is closing his introduction. It's a three-chapter introduction, and the remainder of the letter has only two chapters left. So for the next two chapters, he's going to dive into the reason he wrote uh, on the specific issues of, of correction that are needed, but he's taken three chapters to just uh, introduce what he's going to say next. And this passage is the closing passage of that section of the letter. Now, does God grant Paul's request for these three blessings? The answer is yes, he does. And when we go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3, notice what we read. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. There it is. And the love of every one of you abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast, among, uh, boast of you among the churches of God for your Patience. Now, patience is often in Paul's writing associated with this idea of hope, the patience of hope. 
And so he says, your patience and faith in all of your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. How do we endure tribulation? How do we purify ourselves? We purify ourselves by remembering the hope that we have in Christ at his return. And he says that this is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. So God answered yes to all three of Paul's optative mood prayers of blessing in this passage. And so I want to ask each of you individually, how's it going in your faith, love, and hope? You know, we've come through quite a few messages now that have just been ringing with this, these three, right? Faith, love, and hope. We could go elsewhere in the scriptures to Corinthians 13 and faith, hope, and love. And uh, Paul is hammering away on these three because these three are foundational to what it means to be a born-again believer in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, how are you doing in this area of your faith, your love toward God, your love toward one another, your love for the world that does not yet know him or know of him? And how are we doing on that hope? Are you perpetually reminding yourself that Jesus is coming back? And whether he comes to meet you in the air or whether you go to see him by means of the grave, is your hope secure in your belief in the gospel? Do you see the evidence of your faith in the way you love God and the way you love one another? We're going to take part in the Lord's Prayer now, or the Lord's Supper. We'll, we'll do the Lord's Prayer too. Let's do that. But the, uh, the Lord's Supper, and it's an opportunity to do a reality check. You know, to, to, to check your heart, to look at your motives, and, and to ask yourself, uh, is there anything in my life that I need to confess to God that I need to just deal with before I take part in the Lord's Supper? The reason that we celebrate the Lord's Supper as often as we do is so that we have this occasional reality check of how am I doing in walking with the Lord? And is there anything, does anything come to mind that you need to confess to God or anything in relationship to someone else that you need to to deal with? You know, it would not be inappropriate to go to somebody and give them a hug if it's a relationship that's been strained and that needs to be uh, amended. So, as we receive the elements of the Lord's Supper, um, remember that, that this, this Lord's Supper represents the most expensive purchase in all of eternity. The purchase of your very soul by the blood of Jesus Christ. The opportunity for you to eat the bread of life was purchased at the cross for you.
Thank you. Thank you, Clayton. Okay. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, what a way to begin. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, knowing that it represented his own broken body, and he blessed it. He blessed the bread that represented his sacrifice on the cross. And he said to his disciples, who would be his apostles, eat this as often as you do in remembrance of me. This is a memorial meal to remember him in his death. And so as we take part of this, we take part knowing that this was his payment in order for us to be saved, rescued from our sins, restored to fellowship with God, and restored to fellowship with our fellow man. And so as we take part of it, let those remembrances be ringing in your heart and your mind. And after the supper, Jesus took the cup. And he said, this, this cup is the, the cup of the sacrifice in my blood. This is not the blood of a lamb every year. This is a once and for all sacrifice. A sacrifice that never needs to be repeated. And in taking part in the Lord's Supper, we're not repeating that sacrifice, we're remembering that sacrifice and rejoicing in the truth that it was successful, that God received it, and now the gates of heaven are open wide to whosoever believes may come. And so as we take part, as we drink this cup, we drink it remembering him again and his love for us. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you for dying in our place. Thank you for rising from the dead on our behalf. And thank you that we are identified with you in both your death and your resurrection. So that now we may live for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.